I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Altercation. Altercation is the nothing personal word of the day. It's just another manic Monday. Wish it were Sunday, because that's my fun day. Why is altercation the word of the day? Teams fight. Teams fight each other. Teams fight themselves. It always makes news. Try to keep stuff in the clubhouse. You don't like to see players fighting in the dugout. Remember that famous, God, we didn't cover this, Coca. Remember the famous Rob Dibble fight? I think he and Lou Pinella for the Cincinnati Reds had a major fight in the dugout many, many, many years ago. And this was before social media. It got a lot of attention on the highlight shows, but everyone moved on. A lot of things happen in in clubhouses and locker rooms. There's a lot of frustration, a lot of adrenaline, a lot of testosterone, sometimes too much. And as a team president, your job is to take these altercations. And the first thing you do is understand exactly what happened. So you speak to the, you and the GM would then speak to the coach or the manager. You'd speak to the players involved and really try to understand what caused it. And then you make a decision on what you're going to do. What are the consequences? Sometimes fighting altercations are actually good for a team. They're good for team chemistry. Often, when there is a player involved in a fight who's an unpopular player, who is sort of a pain in the ass, there are players who do what we would call clubhouse justice. Clubhouse justice in a non-pugilistic sense is done through kangaroo court, which is when there are players fined by each other for different actions And that money goes toward a team party or goes toward a charity, goes toward something else. That's the non-fighting clubhouse justice. Fighting clubhouse justice is when there is pushing, shoving, maybe even a punch thrown, some sort of verbal salvo. In Baltimore this weekend, we had a little more than that. We had a full-out altercation between a player named Earl Thomas and one of his teammates. Earl Thomas is a defensive back for the Baltimore Ravens. Baltimore Ravens are coached by the University of Michigan coach's brother. Uh, The Ravens coach is John Harbaugh. The Michigan coach is Jim Harbaugh. They're brothers. So Earl Thomas was signed by the Ravens. He's one of the top 100 football players. The football players, I, I like this. They rank each other, I guess. So there's a top 100 list in the NFL. I think that Earl Thomas is number 75. So he's not the best player, certainly not a role player. He is probably one of the top five defensive backs in all of football. He was signed to a pretty front-loaded deal, four years, $55 million with the Ravens. This is year two of that deal, due to make $10 million this year. Earl Thomas is the same guy who, on one of the previous episodes, I think we had mentioned that he got hurt one time. He was carted off the field and he flipped the bird ostensibly to his coach. 
he is uh um, he had the issue, I believe, this offseason, Coco, am I right? Was was this the offseason he had the issue where his girlfriend or wife pulled a uh, some sort of gun on him and got arrested? Yeah, Coco's confirming to me his wife put a gun to his head after catching him in an orgy. Bet you haven't typed that recently or said that. So, yeah, this is the same guy. So let's pretend that you have a player who you sign to a big deal. You're paying him a lot of money. He's performing, but you are finding that the juice is simply not worth the squeeze. And you're saying to yourself, we're not going to release him, but he's on a very short string. From a human resources standpoint, it is critical that the manager, coach, and GM, owner, president, somebody has papered the his file to say, we have met with this player and we have told this player the following five things that are unacceptable. We've told this players if he does this again, there will be consequences. We've told this player that we know he did this, he better not do that. All of that is done in order to potentially withstand a grievance by the players union should there ever be a time when you want to terminate that player for cause. So Earl Thomas gets into this altercation. He then apologizes on Instagram in what I thought was a bizarre Instagram post where he said, Bean sent home sucks. I can't get ready for the season. It's been one of my best camps. He showed the clip of what started the fight. He said it was a mental error on his part, a busted coverage. And? And so you decided to beat the crap out of your teammates? So he apologizes, thinking that may be the end. The Ravens immediately sent him home from practice. It was not COVID-related. It was obviously altercation-related. Well, the following day, they released him. When you release a player, you can do it two ways. My favorite type of releasing is the type where you can release for cause and not pay. The most common type is when you release a player not for cause and you then have to pay the player. Well, the Ravens do not want to pay Earl Thomas's salary. So what you do in that case when you are an NFL team and you've got a guaranteed portion of a salary that you don't want to pay, first what you do is that you will have to send a letter to the player, which is what you would do to any employee when you are firing that employee and you are claiming cause. You cite the provision in the contract that is the termination provision, termination for cause, and you say, under this provision, we are terminating you. So you send a letter making it clear that first things first, we're stripping you, Earl Thomas, of all your guarantees. Then, absolutely, the union on the player's behalf will grieve that because they do not want any precedent on the books. In any instance, that shows that a team can do anything to get out of paying a player his guaranteed money. Why? Not to protect against domestic violence, not to protect against racism, not to protect against altercations. It's to protect against a team trying to get away with not paying a player who sucks. That is why these grievances happen. That is why the union will fight to the bone because there is an example where teams often try to get rid of players who are not performing and find any way not to pay them. It will be very interesting 
because some contracts can have different types of provisions related to the guarantee, certain activities that are not allowed. If a player has a history, you can actually put something in the contract about specific things that a player cannot do. A player may not, and this is not taking away a player's civil liberties. You can put anything in a contract if the player signs it and it's approved, that's in the contract. The player may not play basketball. The player may not go skydiving. The player may not see his wife's sister. Baltimore chose not to suspend Earl Thomas. They went right to the release part. There are examples where you are counseled to first suspend a player and then release him. Baltimore chose to go right to release and their view by doing that is they felt that they had the inside track on getting this termination for cause grievance proof. So a question you may be asking yourself on nothing personal is that, is it possible when they sent him home that the Ravens could position that as a suspension? And the answer to that is no. When you suspend someone under contract, it has to be a formal suspension that is given in writing. We are suspending you for the following three reasons. You are suspended for the following amount. It's not, hey, cool off. You just had an altercation. We'll see tomorrow in practice. It's not, hey, cool off. You had an altercation. We'll get back to you with next steps. There are very defined steps that teams should take in order to get out of paying the money. I believe the Ravens will prevail. They called it conduct detrimental to the Ravens. And believe me, altercations can be made to be conduct detrimental. On the other hand, if it's a player who you don't want to suspend, you don't want to release. The Jets just had a fight this week with a player named Jordan Jenkins, who's on a one-year deal, not one of the top players, but they didn't want to suspend him or release him. You can manufacture an altercation and say, that was, you hear managers say this all the time. I love it. You know what? I like to see that. I like guys who care. That's what they say public facing. But in the front office, there's nothing positive about physical altercations. Word of the day. It's called altercation. The most difficult part of the job is telling a meaningful member of the Giants family that he won't be on the roster going forward. That was the quote from our favorite manager, Gabe Kapler. Gabe Kapler fired from the Phillies, remember? Gabe Kapler took over the Giants. Gabe Kapler, the top analytics guy. Gabe Kapler of the Giants, who, by the way, have been playing unbelievably well. They've won six in a row. They still have a minus 15 run differential, which is the biggest stat we look at as a front office. They are two games under. And in this crazy world of expanded playoffs in the National League, look out. Are you ready for this? They are tied with the Mets for the seventh seed. They're in the playoffs right now. So what kind of quote was that from Gabe Kapler? That was what he claims was his view of the Hunter Pence designation. Hunter Pence is a two-time world champion. 
Hunter Pence is currently batting. He's got to be batting below 100, like in the 90s somewhere. He is not performing well. He's the guy who has that strange arm, a great personality, just a great guy all around. But he's not playing well. And the Giants had, even with expanded rosters, the Giants had some player moves to make, and they designated him. What that means is he's done. They'd signed him to a one-year, $3 million deal, and basically prorated, call it, you know, a million dollars, and the season's already half done. It's really not a huge financial decision to designate him. If they can't trade him, you end up simply releasing him and paying him the rest of his guaranteed money, prorated money, of course. So why am I interested in this? Because I want to tell you all what the most difficult part of the job is when you're manager. And it's not telling a player that he's been designated. I want to tell you how that goes. So when you are designating a player, you know in advance. It's not as though after an 0 for 3 night, they decided that Hunter Pence was going to be designated. You're aware of the roster flow. So you know who's on the injured list. You know who's on the suspended list. You know who's on the COVID list. You're in touch with the doctors. You know exactly when a player is eligible to be recalled. You know when a player is going to be healthy. And you know what your roster issues are. By roster issues, I mean you carry with you a list of players and it has how many options they have left, which means can a player be optioned to the minor leagues? Or in this this year's parlance, it's called sent to the alternate site. You'll see that on the crawl of your TV. John Doe was sent to the alternate site. I find that funny. It sounds like they're being beamed like Scotty up into another world. But sending to the alternate site is the same as being optioned. And so you have a list of players who are eligible to be optioned. Players can be out of options. You may read about that in baseball. When a player is out of options, that means you cannot send that player to the minor leagues. You either have to keep him on your major league roster or subject him to waivers, and he has to clear waivers in order for him to be sent back to the minor leagues. And when a player is on waivers, the other 29 teams have an opportunity to claim that player and put him on their own roster. So you get rid of people who you can option. We call it the train between AAA and major leagues because optioned players, you can option a player 10 times in a year and that counts as one option. So that's why you see players being sent down, then called up, then sent down, then called up. Totally normal. The players know they're in that situation. When you bring a player in and he's called up, you welcome him to the big leagues and you say, listen, keep working hard. We're going to give you the ball in situations to try to make it successful. Don't ask me how long you're going to be here. Make it hard for us to send you back. Then a player comes back from injury. We bring the same player in, sit him down in the office. The way it works is after the game, you go into the manager's office. You say to the manager, listen, we're going to be sending back out John Doe. The manager calls to the pitching coach and says, hey, go get the pitcher John Doe. Or he says to the hitting coach, hey, go get the hitter John Doe. Or he says to the clubby, hey, go find John Doe. Hey, John Doe's in the shower. Hey, tell John Doe to get here after the shower. That's always annoying to me when we're sending out a player who's in the shower because that's stopping me from leaving the stadium at the end of a game. Player comes in. We say, hey, we're going to be sending you back down to AAA. Well, what did I do? Was it something I did? Well, you know how the roster is, and we just, this is the move we're making, but work hard down there and be ready for when the next call comes, if it comes. See you later. Moving on, not hard. Designating a player, that's a little different. 
When you call a player in to designate him, you tell the player, listen, John, we're going to be making a roster move today and we're going to be designating you for assignment. So we will be in touch with you. As you know, you've got 10 days to either trade you or release you. And we will decide what we are going to do. And uh, we'll let you know. See you later. Now, what if it is a player who is a shell of himself, but a superstar? Like, let's go even Hall of Famer like an Ichiro. You don't call Ichiro in on a Tuesday after a game and say, hey, we're designating you. We're taking you off the roster when he's had a Hall of Fame career, when he has been a huge part of your franchise. You will have been talking to Ichiro and to Ichiro's agent for the weeks leading up to that because the view is that there's going to be a roster crunch. We would always call it a roster crunch. And that roster, roster crunch requires that you have a choice. You can either choose to communicate with the player who's in play to be designated or you ignore that player. I was always of the opinion that there are certain players that we would purposefully not tell because we were worried that if a player had a feeling that he was going to be designated or released or uh, sent back to the minors, that he would fake an injury and force us to put him on the major league injured list where he would continue to get paid at the major league rate. So there were some young players who we would only tell them and it would be a total sneak attack. Other players who are absolute professionals, you communicate with them. So when the time comes to designate them, you know you're going to have to pay their full guaranteed salary. You know you're not going to be able to trade because you've tried to find a trade for him before designating him. So you sit down over the course of time and explain what's going on with the roster, what's going on with his play. Hunter Pence knows that he's hitting 95 or 96. Hunter Pence, these players know the roster very well. They know exactly when moves need to be made. It's not a surprise. So for Gabe Kapler to say that this is the most difficult part of the job, he's just full of it. He's trying to give you a quote to make him sound as though he's really good at doing the difficult, important parts, but he can't run a game. He's making you want to believe that you should have sympathy for having to designate Hunter Pence when he had nothing to do with it, by the way, totally done by the front office. What's even more so is we would not have our managers designate a Hunter Pence. We'd go down as president and GM and we'd do it ourselves with the manager in the office. There's certain players we'd let the manager do, but a player like Hunter Pence, we're going to do. And we're going to explain that this is now the day. And he's not going to look at us googly-eyed and say, oh, my God, I had no idea. Gabe Kapler, we caught you, I hear, on nothing personal. Well, we are seven days away, folks. Can you believe this? The season just started, but there are teams halfway done. The Oakland A's are 20 and 9. 30 games is halfway through the season. They've played 29 games. The Dodgers are already halfway through their season. They're 22 and 8. So let's do a little math. The regular season is normally six months. At the end of June is when you are halfway done with your season. At the end of July, you're two-thirds done with your season, and that's when the trade deadline is. 
This year, the trade deadline is on August 31st. That means teams will be more than halfway, but under two-thirds, though some teams like the Marlins and Phillies and now Yankees and Cardinals will be under that threshold. Although seven days, the Yankees probably will be passed because they're 16 and nine, so they'll be past 30. The overwhelming majority of the teams will be halfway done with their season. So what's going on now with the trade deadline? Well, it's a different type, not just because it's so much earlier in the season, generally, in terms of games played, but because this is the first year there's expanded playoffs. So let me run this by you. Let's just take a team like the Philadelphia Phillies. They're 10 and 14 and last place in the National League East. They are two games behind the second place Marlins. And recall, please, that two teams in every division, the top two teams are automatically in the playoffs. On top of that, there's two wild card teams. The wild card teams in the National League are the Mets and the Giants right now, who are two games under. That means the Phillies are one game behind a wild card spot. The Phillies were buyers. They had a horrible bullpen. They watched nothing personal. They immediately traded for a bunch of the Boston Red Sox rejects who have been nothing short of mediocre already. I think Workman, the, the, the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, I was just going to say, the Philadelphia Phillies won a game on a D.D. Gregorius relay throw to home plate, tagging out J.T. Realmuto, tagged out Dansby Swanson. Why did that happen? Because Workman gave up and was about to blow the save. That's like the most famous play in Marlins history, Coco. I'm just, I just thought of this. My favorite play of all time is the Jeff Conine ending the division series in 03, throwing the ball to get out JT Snow at the plate. What no one talks about is that was Ugier being a blowing a save. But for Conine's throw, forget winning the series and Pudge holding up the ball like Statue of Liberty, Liberty holding her torch. This was a blown save. So Workman comes to the Phillies, blows the save, but the Phillies were buyers. So seven days into the deadline, who's buying, who's selling? Well, I got one for you. I think everyone may be buying. The only ones I can consider selling would be the Texas Rangers because the Texas Rangers are 10 and 17. They are not going to catch Houston or Oakland. They're better than the Mariners. They're two games ahead of the Angels. I think the Angels are going to sell too. Let me explain what's in the mind thought process of a seller when you have a team playing below expectations in a season with expanded playoffs. It's when you're so despondent and so poor that you cannot risk the money. The Texas Rangers were supposed to open their new ballpark this year, and they have not had one fan, one hot dog sold, one parking spot filled, one popcorn bought, nothing. The Texas Rangers have not performed. So I believe that they will end up being sellers because they will be told by their owner that they will have no choice but to save money because their budget's blown. Remember, they signed Kluber who's hurt. They brought in a bunch of pitchers and they're just not performing. What about a team like the Cincinnati Reds? 
the darlings of the preseason. Trevor Bauer on a one-year deal about to become a free agent. The Cincinnati Reds supposed to compete with the Cubs, Cardinals, and Brewers in the National League Central. The Reds are 11-15. and 15. They're only two and a half games behind the Cardinals, who've only played 17 games. The Cubs, even though they're four and six in their last 10, have a comfortable lead. The Reds have a run differential of minus 11, but they have a 56% chance of making the playoffs. Why do I think the Reds end up actually not selling? Because they should sell. They're not good enough. We said they weren't good enough, but they've got an owner who has not tasted jewelry, doesn't know what the ring feels like. Getting older, Bob Castellini, feels like this is his moment. He signed Moustakas and Castellanos to $64 million deals. He traded for Trevor Bauer. He's got Luis Castillo and Anthony Descalfani in the rotation. He's got Sonny Gray pitching great. He's going to buy when he should be selling. And as the king, we used to buy all the time when in theory we should have sold. Remember the Giants last year did that sort of half buy, half sell at the deadline? I don't know if you remember that, but they should have traded Baumgartner and Dint, and they ended up trading Melanson to the Braves instead. And they just did sort of half this, half that under the theory they didn't want to upset Bruce Bochy in his last year managing. Give me a break. Who cares about that? I said it at the time on CBS Sports HQ. And what I'll say now is the Reds clearly should be selling. Get some value for Trevor Bauer, who would be an amazing addition to any team who doesn't want to win. Yes, I said that right. People will think Trevor Bauer will help them win, but he won't. That is the perfect guy to sell. But I think the Reds will go the other way and say, you know what? I think that we can catch the Cardinals and keep ahead of the Brewers and make the playoffs. And then with our rotation, you never know. It's amazing the delusion that takes place right before a trade deadline. What about teams who could buy who had no expectation of being good? That's a very tough situation. When you run a team and you expect to stink, and then you're halfway through the season getting to the deadline and you're sort of in a playoff spot or close to a playoff spot, you're thinking, wow, we got to take advantage of this. I'm talking about the Miami Marlins who are 11 and 11 and ready, become. I'm talking about the Baltimore Orioles who are 14 and 14. The Orioles have won two in a row. They only have a 15% chance, according to Fangraphs, of making the playoffs. But they're 500. They got a chance. The Marlins, in a terrible National League East, are they and the Braves are the only teams 500 or above. Yet they only have an 11% chance of making the playoffs. What I used to do as team president, when Fangraphs had us at 10% to make the playoffs, I thought they were full of it and that we were 80%. When they had us at 75% to make the playoffs, I said, these guys know exactly what they're talking about. We got to buy. We have a 75% chance of making the playoffs. That's the beautiful part about all of this is that owners and presidents believe what they want to believe and they manufacture, manipulate the facts in order to keep believing that which they want to. The Marlins and Orioles should not be buying under any scenario. But when you've had a playoff, a lack of playoff stretch like the Marlins have had, yes, I know, since 2003. When you haven't finished above 500 since 2009, yes, I'm aware of that too. And when you can finish maybe above 500 in a season that's short, doesn't matter. That will count as a season above 500 and your streak ends. 
I was taught by a manager, Jack McKeon taught me 500 is not the goal. Because I used to say, let's just play 500 when we were rebuilding or when we did fire sales. I'd say, let's be 500. And I was always told, 500? You want to be ordinary, Sparky? You want to be ordinary? I never wanted to be ordinary. I want to be extraordinary. Being extraordinary when there's a trade deadline means making decisions that your fans and owner may not like, but are in the best long-term interest of the team. Wait to see. You know my wait to sees are. I'll tell you something that I think is going to happen. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Wait to see. The Reds will buy and the Rangers will sell. Okay, we're going to get to some serious Roger Goodell stuff and some NFL issues. But first, I want to give you my pick of the day. Uh, we're above 500, folks. Nothing personal. Pick of the day. We're nine and eight. Do you remember way back on Friday, I said the Phillies had no chance that Freed would beat him? Well, he did. Braves beat the Phillies. Well, I got a pick. I want to go two games over. Big series starts tonight. Cleveland, Minnesota. Cleveland, Minnesota are separated by a game and a half in the American League Central. Minnesota has 10 losses. Indians have 11 losses. The Twins are going with a guy named Kenta Maeda, who tried to become, I think, the third Japanese pitcher to throw a no-hitter last outing. He threw eight innings of no-hit ball, I think, and then gave up a hit. Well, I have a rule that I use for gambling. A pitcher following his no-hitter will not, or almost no-hitter, will not throw anything close to a no-hitter. It's an important game for the Indians, and I think the Indians will prevail because more often than not, Maeda will perform below expectations. Nothing personal pick of the day. We're going the Indians over the Twins. All right, quick update on what happens when uh, games get canceled or postponed. Remember what happened to the Mets? The Mets had a positive test, staff and player. Everyone said stop in the name of love, so they stopped. Didn't play the entire the last game against the Marlins or the entire Subway Series against the Yankees. But for whatever reason baseball has in its head, they've got to get every team to play 60 games. So guess what? The Yankees and Mets are playing. Get ready for this. The old five-game weekender. Doubleheader Friday, doubleheader Sunday, and one game Saturday. That is, quickly do the math. Can you do it? 37 innings. That's 14 times 2 is 28, plus 9 is 37. Doubleheaders are seven innings each. So the Yankees and Mets will play five games this weekend. That's more like a Subway Grando series. All right, when we come back, uh, I hope that all of you are doing what I was doing last night between 9 and 10 p.m. Eastern. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. 
Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. Welcome back. Last night, 9 p.m. Season finale of Yellowstone season three. I reviewed Yellowstone on Nothing Personal. I'm bringing it back up. Yellowstone takes place in Montana. It's about a family named the Duttons, led by John Dutton, played by Kevin Costner, and they own 50,000 acres in Montana of the most beautiful land you will ever see. And there are Native American reservations. There are venture capitalists. There is killing. There is sex. There is rodeo. There is branding. There is unbelievable storytelling. Wes Bentley stars in it as well. You may remember from American Beauty. Uh, it, it is, for me, one of the best series going right now. But what's interesting is that you have to watch it old school style, once a week. So season three unfolded over the course of, I don't know if, whether they had eight, nine, or ten episodes. It's one a week, as opposed to another series that you watch on a streaming service where you can binge the, a whole season in two days. When you binge a series, you don't have opportunity to, uh, what's the word? You don't have opportunity to ingest the product and let it marinate because it's just rapid fire. It just goes and it's next episode. You don't even get to watch the credits. If you don't click next episode, it goes to next episode. It just starts and then you can't stop and then it's done. Yellowstone ended on a cliffhanger that reminded me of who shot J.R. Ewing. Spoiler alert, we're going to find out with season four who wanted a little too much money in a renegotiated contract situation. Is it some? Is it all? Is it the major cast members? It ended in a flurry of, oh my God. No. Oh my God. No. Kevin Costner can't die. It's his show. Wait a minute. Did he executive produce? Google, Google. Did Kevin Costner have a fight with Taylor Sheridan? Did he have a fight with Paramount? Is something going on? Is he doing an extra movie? Yellowstone, please check it out. Season three had everything. Don't binge it. Watch it once every four days so you can have the cliffhanger feeling I had and let it build. Let it build. Okay, today is Monday, and we had week one of the NFL season yesterday. It didn't start with a lot of fanfare, but it was good to see football back. There were some surprises on the field, I thought. Uh, it was good to see Tom Brady in a Bucks uniform. It was good to see the game play. Congratulations to the NFL for getting week one under their belt. Whew. Wait, it wasn't week one? I, I think it was. Hold on, let me, I, I'm almost positive. I was watching football all day yesterday and I heard the, n no? What about all those? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Hold on. Thank God it wasn't week one of the NFL regular season yesterday. Did you hear what happened? Over 10 teams had to stop their practices because there were about 77 players who tested positive yesterday or the day before and had to be held out. But of course, with all of the great testing results, 
and lack of positivity, it was very bizarre that there had been an outbreak on 10 different teams. Well, we found out that it wasn't actually an outbreak. What we found out, according to the National Football League, is that Saturday's daily COVID testing returned several positive tests. Several, by the way, please tell the NFL what several means. There's one, then there's a few, there's a couple, there's several. 77 is not several. Several positive tests from each of the clubs. Well, no, about 10 is not several. Serviced by, here it is, get ready for the cell, get ready. Serviced by the same laboratory in New Jersey. We are working with our testing partner, BioReference. They named the lab. I'm sure that made the lab happy. To investigate these results while the clubs work to confirm or rule out the positive tests. So all these players test positive. There's a feeling they were false positives. They all get retested. And on the retest, they were all negative. Uh-oh. What would happen if that had been Saturday going into game one, week one of the regular season? Do you let the players play? Do you have a way to do rapid testing on site? Don't have that yet. Do you have them tested again and hope to get the results? Do you delay the games until later Sunday? Do you maybe play on Monday? What do you do? There's a lot of money at stake, like billions of dollars. Like right now, $5 billion in national TV deals that the rumor is could turn into $10 billion in national TV deals when all is said and done with new deals coming down the pike. Ah, I have an idea. If you're the National Football League, you're testing players on Saturday, anyone comes back positive, you've got another set of tests ready to go Sunday morning, first thing, and if the player is negative, he plays. If the player's positive, he sits, and you make a deal with the lab that there will be rapid on-site testing, no matter what it takes. Because without rapid on-site testing, without the need to send the snot or the spit to a lab, The NFL is subject to either the postponing or canceling of games, and it's not like baseball where they can just play a doubleheader. By the way, Coca, we didn't even talk about this. Why couldn't they play a doubleheader? If baseball can play two seven-inning games, which is 14 instead of 18, which is seven-ninths of a game, which is three and a half, four and a halfs. How about just playing two three-quarter games with a break in between? Write that down, Coca. We can do that. We'll play three-quarter games. Not going to happen. The NFL has got to find a way because if what happened on Saturday happened Saturday before the first regular season game or any regular season game, that will be a disruption to the NFL schedule that they are not in a position to withstand. So what do you do if you're the testing laboratory and you are being sullied by the NFL? Well, you know what you do. You make a statement. On August 22nd, BioReference Laboratories reported an elevated number of positive COVID-19 test results for NFL players at multiple clubs. The NFL immediately took necessary actions to ensure the safety of the players and personnel. Our investigation, speaking on behalf of the laboratory, 
indicated that these were most likely false positive results caused, caused, here it is, this is in bold, I'm giving you the bold, not them, caused by an isolated contamination during test preparation in the New Jersey laboratory. Isolated contamination. I wonder if that's part of the Ryan Braun situation. Hmm. I guess we'll revisit that another time. Reagents and analyzers and staff were all ruled out as possible causes, and subsequent testing has indicated that the issue has been resolved. All individuals impacted have been confirmed negative and informed. So reagents, analyzers, and staff were ruled out as possible causes. So it wasn't people, and it wasn't any of the reagents or analyzers. Hmm, what would that leave? Let me think. Why isn't that in the statement? How many things are needed to actually do a test? Hey, out there, nothing personal listeners. Could you give me information, please? Because I'm not going to get it from John Cohn, the doctor, executive chairman of BioReference. Could you tell me in COVID testing or any testing, if it's not the the reagents, the analyzers, or the staff, what would cause an isolated contamination? Hmm. Dirt on the floor? A little dust ball? I guess we'll have to wait and see. But you wait and see. The NFL will certainly figure out how to deal with this issue. All right, Coca. We had a good one today. You know what I want? (laughs) I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson, get into my Twitter at David P. Samson. Please follow. Tell your friends about nothing personal. Rate, review, all the things you've been doing. Thank you so much for that. Someone asked me my view of Roger Goodell and his newfound respect and love for Colin Kaepernick. Asked me whether or not I agreed with what Roger Goodell was doing right now. So Roger Goodell, just to catch you up, basically said that, quote, he wishes that he had listened sooner to Kaepernick, Callan Kaepernick. That's what we should have listened. That's where we should have listened sooner, Goodell said. That's where we should have been in there with them, understanding and figuring out what we can do as the NFL. He was talking about that he did not properly respect or understand the kneeling. Roger Goodell on August, what's the day, Coca? On August 24th, with everything that's gone down, with all of the systemic racism, social injustice, all of the water under the bridge with Kaepernick and him being absolutely blackballed and not signed, whether it's because of his talent not being good in the clubhouse or the fact that he was drawing attention to a social issue that was very not well received by owners or by the president. But then more and more people got murdered. More and more people started speaking up. More and more people realized that this has to end now. And all of a sudden the NFL grabbed onto the coattails of justice and said, we are going to be the leaders now during their draft. Every time, every moment they have, they have talked about how woke they are and how on the program they are. 
But now Roger Goodell has gone one step further and said, yeah, we should have listened to him. We should have known that it wasn't about the flag or about the veterans. This was about bringing attention to injustices in the black community and everywhere else. You're a little late on this, Roger. What is making you do this? Oh, are you doing this because the players are still holding you accountable for your actions? Are you doing this because you want to make sure that in Washington and in political circles and with everything that went on with the Washington football team and with everything that's still going on in this country and in this world that you continue to be on the right side of history? Well, what's the playbook for being on the right side of history? Do you know how to be on the right side of history? By being on the right side every day. Because history, by definition, judges you in the past tense. You can't plan to be on the right side of history. You just have to do what's right. And if you do what's right every day, by definition, you'll always be on the right side of history. But when you become a person who is reactive and not proactive and tries to pretend that you cared about something the whole time when you didn't, when you are a public figure where there is absolute proof of what mattered to you and what didn't, and then you try to rewrite the narrative to change your legacy, to change your history, you have forgotten the basic principle of legacy that you are writing more and more of it every single day. Now, it's not that Roger isn't trying. I mean, he just sent an email to his entire staff in the NFL today saying earlier this month, I had an opportunity to sit down with the NFL legend, Emmanuel Acho, for his series, quote, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. We had a lengthy, in-depth discussion about race, and it was very informative. Part one of the two-part episode premiered on YouTube, on his YouTube channel last night. You can watch it here with a link. Part two drops tonight. We'll pass that along after it does. We covered a lot of ground during our session, but it's an important topic and one that deserves our attention both at the league and throughout our society. I encourage you to watch and send me any thoughts you may have. All right, I'm sending you my thoughts, Roger, and I haven't watched it yet. My thoughts are, it's really nice what you're doing. But an acknowledgement that the reason why you're doing these things, it's okay to say that you've changed. People evolve. People see the error of the ways. I want to believe that people can change for the better. I want to believe that they can change their future while acknowledging their past. I want to believe that people can act differently in the present. But in order to do it, you have to gain trust and you have to gain credibility. And the way you do that is by being honest with with your constituents. Don't tell me that earlier this month you had an opportunity. Were you so busy the past 10 years that you didn't have a half hour or an hour or two hours or four hours or 30 minutes? You didn't do it because you didn't have to do it. And you now realize that you have to do it. As a consequentialist, I'm in. I'm glad it's being done. But don't for one minute tell me that that isn't about business. This is nothing personal. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>